Welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you are blessed by our content, feel free to like and subscribe. We appreciate Dr. Travis Kearns coming on tonight. He's the Director of Missions at the Three Rivers Baptist Association. Um, he's also a professor at Southwestern and North Greenville University. Mm-hmm. He was with the North American Mission Board in Salt Lake City, Utah, there for six years. He has a bachelor's from New- North Greenville and a master's and a PhD from Southern Bab- the, the, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I had to get that, get, get that right. And right. Um, with, a, with a specialization in apologetics and then in your PhD program, a specialization in Mormonism. Is that correct? Yeah, apologetics, uh, specializing specifically in world religions and cults, but then sub this one in Mormonism. Um, also did systematic theology and um, evangelism. Okay, yeah. awesome. Thank you for coming on. Really yeah. appreciate it. Kind of give us a little bit, just a quick story of your background, maybe yeah. your testimony, and then through your studies, how you got into going into Salt Lake City and, you know, evangelizing the Mormons. So. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in this area. I grew up in Taylor's, so not too far down the road here from where we're sitting here. Grew up at First Baptist Taylor's, um, you know, grew up in a family where my dad was a deacon, mom was in the choir at church. Uh, but we were pretty much a Sunday morning only kind of family. Uh, we did Wednesday nights. We never did Sunday nights. Um, when I graduated high school, uh, thought I wanted to go to Furman University. But the price was just so incredibly high at Furman, we, mm-hmm. our family simply couldn't afford it. Uh, and now providentially, I'm thankful we didn't uh, end up there. Uh, but went to North Greenville, uh, started out as a, a business major because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And the end of my first semester, uh, that would have been 1995, fall of 95, God called me to ministry, went and talked to one of my professors at North Greenville, Dr. George Martin, who now is a professor of missions at Southern Seminary in Louisville. Uh, talked to him about calling and uh, prayed through it, talked to my pastor about it at Taylor's, talked to others I trusted, and changed my major from business to then religion, now Christian studies, and just fell in love with it. So I'd, I'd found what God had created me to do. Um, so finished in North Greenville. After I finished there, we served for two years. Uh, oh, I got married, met my wife in 96. We got married about two weeks after I graduated at North Greenville in 99. Um, we served for two years at Mountain Creek Baptist Church as associate pastor for youth and education. And then in the summer of 2001, moved to Louisville, uh, did MDiv, finished that 2004, PhD finished in 2009, started teaching full-time at Southern in 2005 while I was doing PhD work. Uh, finished that in 2013, moved to Salt Lake City to work with the North American Mission Board, overseeing church planting and missions in the Salt Lake metro area. Also worked with the Utah-Idaho Southern Baptist Convention overseeing church planting and missions in the rest of Utah, all of Idaho. Uh, 2019, moved to Southwestern to teach there full-time. And then in January of last year, January of 22, came here, accepted a call to be the uh, associational mission strategist for Three Rivers. Old titles, DOM, and before that was associational missionary. So usually I just say, if you say, hey, you, I'll answer, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. So um, I'm one of those kids that, like I said, grew up in church. Um, Heard the gospel preached my entire life. Um, one Sunday, the gospel just hit me in a different way. Um, my dad came into my room that Sunday afternoon, led me to Christ. Church discipled me for the next six years. I wasn't baptized until I was 14. And then called a ministry from that church and Taylor's uh, and the Three Rivers Association, then the North Greenville Association, mm-hmm. helped pay for me to go to North Greenville and Southern and Southern again. Um, so I'm thankful to be from the area, uh, born and raised. and called the ministry here. Awesome. Thank you for coming on. And yeah. um, this is great. I, I was talking to Dr. Drew Hines the other day. Uh, 
all the pastors have, have been very thankful for your uh, just your short time here as a director of missions and, and all you've done. So thank you for doing that. I know, you know, uh, you met Randy Bradley and mm -hmm. kind of coming into that role after him. He was, he was doing it for a long time and very appreciative of him, but um, thank you for coming in and filling those shoes and, yeah. and working, working yeah. that. So your specialization is in Mormonism uh -huh. in the study of that. Kind of just starting from the beginning, what is the origin, the history? How did Mormonism start? Yeah, so it starts really with the birth of Joseph Smith uh, in 1806. Um, he grew up in, or was born in Sharon, Vermont, so he grew up in the Northeast, mm -hmm. um, and was going to a number of different Christian denominations, attending various churches he's grown up. The three predominant ones were Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian. Uh, and he kept having the same question answered in different ways by those three denominations. So he had questions about hell, he had questions about salvation, questions about things like predestination, election, things like that. The Baptists would answer one way, or questions about church. The Baptists answer one way, the Methodists another way, the Presbyterian a third way. Smith felt confused. Uh, so one night, the story goes, he's reading his family Bible. He hits James 1.5, which is, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who will give liberally. Uh, and he goes out into the woods to pray about it. And this was in uh, 1820, uh, so he's 14 years old. And he says, I went out in the woods, and when I prayed for wisdom, uh, I was uh, struck by a beam of light above my head. Uh, now, this is the official church-accepted version. There are actually a number of versions that Smith wrote in his own hand, but this is the official version. Beam of light hits him, and two figures appeared in bodily form. He said they were God the Father and Christ the Son. Uh, and those two figures told him all the other churches are wrong. All the uh, professors, which was just a word then for pastors, are apostate. Uh, we will work through you and bring true Christianity back to the earth. So that's really the foundation of it. His, not only his birth, obviously, but then this first vision in 1820. From there, he started spreading the message. Uh, interestingly, um, even though he said that the father and son told him that all these churches were apostate, he remained a Methodist for a number of years after this vision, and his family remained Methodist and Presbyterian for a number of years after this vision. Finally, in 1827, uh, he finds some golden plates that he says he dug up out of the earth that an angel had led him to. Um, there's a long story behind that. But he pulls these golden plates out of the earth and he translates them, uh, and we can talk about how that process worked later if you want to. Um, and out of that process came the Book of Mormon. Uh, which was uh, printed, and then in 1830, he officially found the Church of Christ, which became the Church of Jesus Christ, which then became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So the whole thing starts in 1830. Uh, from 1830 until he died in 1844, mm -hmm. he did everything from gather believers, uh, sent people on international missions, things like that, uh, actually ran for president of the United States uh, wow. on a crazy platform of releasing all criminals on their own recognizance, putting all lawyers in jail, and overthrowing the British government. Wow. That was his basic platform. Uh, and then obviously religious tolerance. Mm -hmm. uh, 1844, he was killed, uh, and Brigham Young took over. And uh, at the beginning of 1847, started walking west, uh, found a number of communities along the way, like Las Vegas, Nevada, is an original Mormon settlement. San Diego was their western seaport. Uh, Arrived in the Salt Lake Valley, July 24th, 1847, and founded Salt Lake City. And that's where they've been ever since. And now, 
after the death of Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of the church, there are about 250 to 300 breakoff groups of Mormonism. So most times when people say Mormon or you see the two guys riding their bikes on the street in suits, that's the Salt Lake Church that Mormon scholars call Brighamites because they followed Brigham Young. But there were a number of breakoff groups over everything you can think of, uh, except, you know, Baptists, we split over carpet color and paint color on the walls. Right. Mormons split over polygamy and over African-Americans in the priesthood, things like that. But about 250 to 300 different breakoff groups. Wow. So, yeah, now the Salt Lake Church has about 15 to 16 million uh, members around the world. But they're like Baptists. If you can find half of them on any given Sunday, you're doing a great job. Mm. Uh, their biggest push, though, is they have about 100,000 missionaries wow. around the world. Just for comparison, the Southern Baptist Convention, which has the largest missionary force in evangelical Protestantism, if you include our chaplains in the council, North American missionaries, military chaplains, and international missionaries, we have about eleven to 12,000. And we pay our missionaries. Mormons pay their own way to go. 90% of their missionaries are between 18 and 20 years old. From BYU mainly? Well, from all over the place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they've got 14 missionary training centers around the world, the largest of which is in Provo, Utah, which is right. off the campus of BYU. Right. Um, but they pay their own way. They're 18 to 20 years old, and there's 100,000 of them around the world. Wow. So that's the basic history of Mormonism. All comes from Joseph Smith and yeah. in the Northeast. Wow. Yeah. So when we talk about the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. and I, I guess there's some other text. What is their view on the inspiration of Scripture? Yeah. Um, as in, in looking at the Bible and then looking at the Book of Mormon, are they viewed differently or in the same light? No, they're viewed differently. So uh, Joseph Smith had a question from a newspaper editor about basic Mormon beliefs early in the history of the church. And uh, he wrote a response, and that response has been called the Articles of Faith. One of those articles of faith says, we believe the Bible insofar as it is translated correctly. We believe the Bible to be the word of God insofar as it is translated correctly. And we believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. Now, if you notice in that statement, insofar as it's translated correctly is only applied to the Bible, not to the Book of Mormon. When a Mormon says, uh, insofar as it's translated correctly, what he actually means is insofar as it's been transmitted correctly. Uh, Mormons are King James only, but they're not King James only out of conviction. It's just out of basically tradition. But when a Mormon says, uh, insofar as it's translated correctly, again, it means transmitted. So Mormons believe that the Bible has been mistransmitted through the years. And basically the way they find the parts that have been transmitted incorrectly is places or are places where the Bible disagrees with Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, or continuing revelation. So the Bible is wrong, for example, in Malachi, where it says God is not a man that he should lie. Uh, or John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Bible has just been transmitted incorrectly because we know Mormonism would tell us that God is a man. He has a physical body of flesh and bones. Um, Brigham Young said he's about six foot two and weighs about 235. Interestingly, that was also Brigham Young's frame size. Um, <laughs> And we know, uh, you know, so he is a man, he's an exalted man, and he's not a spirit. So those two verses have been transmitted incorrectly. Uh, and the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and then continuing uh, Revelation, flesh that out for the Mormon. Yeah. So they believe the Bible, they love it, they read it, but they read it with a lot of skepticism 
and they read it through the lens of Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. So, the book of the Mor- so the Book of Mormon is the standard, basically. It is. Based uh, off of- it is, but it's not. That's the weird part. So a Mormon will say, in fact, Joseph Smith said the Book of Mormon is the most correct book ever be on the earth. Um, but if the Doctrine and Covenants disagrees with the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants is right. Uh, if the Pearl of Great Price disagrees with the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Pro- uh, Price Pro- 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 disagrees with the Book of Mormon, sorry, then the Pearl of Great Price would be correct. If the current president of the church stands up in a few months uh, in April at General Conference in Salt Lake City and says, hey, this verse in the Book of Mormon is wrong, then that verse is wrong. So the newest revelation is what's the most important. So continuing revelation, their fifth unwritten book, four written books within this fifth unwritten, is what really is the most important. Um, so one Mormon leader in the past said, uh, he actually held up a, this is a triple, so this is the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. Uh, he held up his copy of a triple, and this is the front, this is the back. He said, the front of our book is closed, but the back remains open. He said, I hope one day to need a wheelbarrow to carry around all of my scriptures that will be added. Wow. And so they say, just like we need a newspaper or a news website to understand what's going on in the world today, so we need continuing information from heaven to understand how God wants us to live for today. One thing I read that was, that was really interesting about Mormonism is that this view that God the Father mm-hmm. became a man. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what, what that means? Yeah, so it's actually the other way around. So a man became God the Father. So okay. God actually grew up on another planet. He had a name. Uh, his proper name is Elohim, uh, which is actually a Hebrew word, right? So the, the first verse of Genesis 1, in the beginning God, the Hebrew word God there is Elohim. Uh, Mormons believe that's his proper name given to him by his mother and father when he was a little boy growing up. Grew up on another planet somewhere out in the cosmos. Uh, Pearl of Great Price tells us that it was in a different system with a different star. So our system had the sun as the main star, our planetary system. Elohim's planetary system, the main star was called Kolob, K-O-L-O-B. That's in the Pearl of Great Price in one of their scriptures. There's also actually a Mormon hymn they would sing on Sunday mornings about Kolob, about this star. So Elohim grows up on that planet, uh, has brothers and sisters, does everything a good Mormon's supposed to do, has, uh, gets married, has kids, and eventually because he does all the right things, um, which we can talk about later if you want to, what all those things are to be right. saved, then he became a god, got his own planet, that planet is the earth. He still lives in a physical body with his wife or wives in heaven, uh, and that's where God came from. So God is actually a created being. How would they answer the question then of if someone says, well, who created God the Father? Who's the ultimate creator? Yeah. What is their answer to that question? There is no ultimate first deity in Mormonism. So Elohim, the God of the earth, grew up on a planet. That planet had a God who grew up on a planet. That God grew up on a planet that had a God. That God grew up on a planet that had a God on and on into infinity past. Well, um, but the, and there's just no... There's no star. I mean, is, does that seem to be a problem for them or they, they don't really have an issue with that? No, there's, there's really no issue for them because the answer to the question, where did God come from? Usually a Mormon uh, that's either studied a little bit or kind of knows his stuff will say, Heavenly Father has chosen not to reveal that to us. Okay. And if you ask, well, what about the God of his planner? Who's the first God? Heavenly Father has chosen not to reveal that to us. 
you kind of think, well, man, that's kind of a cheesy answer. I mean, come on, give me something better than that. Right. But Christians, evangelical Christians have the same thing, right? The Lord has chosen not to reveal how, how man's will and God's sovereignty work together. We just know that somehow they do. We disagree when we interpret the Bible on how exactly it works, but we would say God's chosen not to reveal that to us exactly how it works. We just trust that it does. That's a Mormon same answer. It's a faith answer. So now we're transitioning maybe from God the Father to um, to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I had someone tell. I've had people tell me um, that well, Mormons they can be Christians. They they believe in Jesus as well. Mm-hmm. What more do Mormons believe about Jesus, and is it what is it different than what we believe? Yeah, that's Jesus? a great question. Um, in fact, that's a question we had more than any other question when we lived in Salt Lake City. When I would come back to the South, especially to try to get church partners to come and partner with our missionaries in mm-hmm. Utah. A lot of people would say, well, Mormons are good Christian people. Why do we need missionaries there? Because they believe in Jesus, right? And most Mormons would say, we have Jesus in the name of our church, but you don't go to Jesus Baptist. We go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The most important thing to understand about Mormons when it comes to this issue, when it comes to really any issue uh, where we have similar vocabulary, is that we use the same words, but we use different dictionaries to define them. That's what makes working with Mormons so incredibly frustrating. Yeah. So I go to Mormon and say, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe you're saved by grace through faith, not of works? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to salvation? Yes. Do you believe God created us? Yes. On and on and on it goes. Right. Do you believe in the Bible? Yes. Uh, so Jesus is also a created being, just like God the Father. Uh, but in eternity past, when Heavenly Father, Elohim, God, and Heavenly Mother, his wife, uh, start uh, basically the plan in the heavens. Their first thing that they do is they start having intimate physical relationships in heaven because God has a body and his wife has a body. So they have intimate physical relationship and they start producing spirit children. The first spirit child born is a little boy and they name him Jehovah. The second, and just as a side note, the second spirit child born is a little boy. They name him Lucifer. So if people have ever heard that Jesus and the devil are brothers in Mormonism, that's how that works. To be fair to Mormons, everybody is a brother or sister of Jehovah and Lucifer because we're all spirit children initially of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. So it's not a special relationship between Jesus and the devil. But uh, that's kind of how that works. So... Jehovah is a created being. Um, Basically what happens is God the Father has this plan he wants to enact, and it's to create or form the earth, put humans on it, um, send the Savior for the humans, and then live happily ever after. And he basically puts out a call who wants to be the Savior. Mm -hmm. Jehovah says, I'll do it. I'll do it your way. I'll give you the glory. Lucifer says, no, I'll do it my way. I'll take the glory. Big fight ensues. Lucifer and his followers lose. Uh, and those followers are one third of the spirit children and they become uh, the devil and the demons. And then some of them prior to 1978, Mormons believe actually become persons with dark skin. So Africans. Wow. Um, And then those persons end up, uh, one of those spirit children that disagreed with God ends up becoming Cain. Cain kills Abel right in Genesis. And the mark that God puts on Cain is dark skin. So that's where the the negativity towards Africans comes from in Mormonism. So at that point, Jehovah becomes uh, 
the Savior, uh, he's born, uh, not uh, conceived by the Virgin Mary. God the Father comes down to the ancient world in bodily form, goes to find Mary, has an intimate physical relationship with her to conceive Jesus while she's engaged to Joseph. So you got Mary engaged to Joseph over here, and over here you got Mary having an intimate physical relationship with God the Father mm. to conceive Jesus. So Jesus is born in or conceived in an adulterous relationship. Uh, he's eventually born. He does everything we believe, uh, performs miracles, preaches the Sermon on the Mount, dies on the cross the whole bit, um, uh, is buried and then rises again on the third day, ministers for 40 years, and then ascends to heaven. Uh, a few years after that, comes to the ancient Americas somewhere. That's the basic storyline of the Book of Mormon. Comes to the ancient Americas either in the heartland of North America or somewhere in Central or South America. Uh, proclaims the gospel to the ancient natives that were here. And that's where the Book of Mormon kind of ends with some family fighting, big skirmishes going on. So that's Jesus. So, you know, when people say to me, Mormons love Jesus, so they're okay, right? Well, you can call him Jesus all you want. But the Jesus in the New Testament that I believe in, the Jesus of Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, that anybody believes in who's read that, uh, the Orthodox biblical Jesus was not created in a, as a spirit baby in a relationship between Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, was not conceived in a physical relationship between God the Father and Mary, uh, is not a created being. He is the eternally existing Word of God, second member of the Trinity. Uh, in Mormonism, that's not the case. They don't even believe in the Trinity. They believe in something called the Godhead. So Heavenly Father is more important than Christ the Son, who is also more important than the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's a basic doctrine of Jesus. That's really interesting. So I guess, how do they reconcile some of the accounts in the New Testament where Jesus claims to be God? Or, or is basically have to make, they have to make the argument that that's not what Jesus is really saying. Yeah, that's the basic argument. Um, Jesus is not really saying he and God are equal, uh, at least not equal in being. They're equal in purpose or in functionality or something like that. So it's if if folks listening are, are familiar with theological controversies in the past, they're modalists. Uh, if they've heard of modalism, they've heard of Arianism, where Arius in the fourth century said about Jesus, there was a time when he was not. Mormons can agree with that. And the way they interpret those texts is just by saying, Joseph Smith said so. So if we were to read a New Testament text from, say, Paul, and somebody asks you, why do you believe that? Your answer is, Paul said so. That's not a cop-out. It's not trying to skirt the issue. That's the answer. I believe Paul said it. Mm -hmm. I believe it's from God. That's, that's why I believe it. For a Mormon, that's equally true with Joseph Smith. So if you want to look at a text like John 1.1 or John 1.14, anything like that, or Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, they would interpret that through the lens of what Joseph Smith taught, which is they're one in purpose, in functionality, in work, but not in essence or in being. Yeah. If, if you are a Mormon, um, then... So like we as Christians believe that salvation comes through Christ and Christ mm -hmm. alone, um, his righteousness imputed on us. For a Mormon, mm -hmm. how do they get saved? How do they get eternal life? So yeah. To speak? So this is, a, uh, this is a copy of a book called Gospel Principles. Gospel Principles is basically the Mormon adult Sunday school manual. It's got the official seal of the church on the back, got the official seal of the church on the inside. So this is officially binding doctrine. It's only officially binding if the church prints it. Just because a Mormon writer writes it doesn't make it official. 
The church puts the seal on it. It's official. So I always use this book. Um, and by the way, for evangelical Christians who might be watching, who think that our Sunday school lessons might be boring, Mormon adults go through this same book once every four years. It doesn't change. It occasionally is updated by the covers updated or a few right. things inside are updated, but Mormon adults, some of them have been through this thing, you know, 10 times. Wow. Um, so I always refer to this when the question of salvation comes up, um, because it's the official statement. So the first thing a person in Mormonism has to do to be saved is to place faith in Christ. The second thing is to repent of sins. The third thing is to be baptized by immersion in a local meeting house. And then you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, you take the sacrament. So communion, you honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, no work, no play, anything on the Sabbath. You fast, you sacrifice, you have work and personal responsibility, you serve, you follow the Lord's law of health, which we can talk about in a minute if you want to. That's called the word of wisdom. Uh, you're charitable, you're honest, you give 10% of your uh, gross earnings in tithes, you uh, perform missionary work, you develop your talents, you're obedient, you have a family, you get married in a temple, and you do work in the temple. So in order to be saved in Mormonism, you place faith in Christ, repent of your sins, get baptized, and then perform 17 specific additional works in order to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean you gain entrance into heaven. When Jesus died, and this is kind of where Mormons can get a little squishy, when Jesus died, he secured afterlife for every single human being who has, does, and will ever live. But what he does is he just opens the door to the afterlife. Where you go in the afterlife depends on your works. In the Book of Mormon, the word salvation is synonymous with the word exaltation. Exaltation means you've done faith, repentance, baptism, and the 17 things, and you get your own planet in the mm. highest level of the Mormon heavens. Wow. Some Mormons would say salvation means entrance into the afterlife. If a Mormon knows his Book of Mormon, then he won't say that you and I are saved. He'll say something like you're going to gain entrance to a certain level of heaven, a certain kingdom in the afterlife. Um, so, you know, Christians obviously don't believe it's faith, repentance, baptism, plus 17 things. We would say it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you're saved through faith, not of works, it's a free gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Um, so yeah, for a Mormon, it's a lot of work, doing a lot of things. It's always keeping up and making sure you're doing the right things all the time. This thing called exaltation, uh -huh. exaltation of humans, mm -hmm. what, what is that? So that's where you do those faith, repentance, baptism, plus 17 things. So we'll right. just call it 20 things. Right. And if, if you do all those things properly, then you're exalted to the third level of the celestial kingdom. So there are, this will take just a second, there are three levels of heaven in Mormonism. Telestial level, which is the bottom. The terrestrial level, which is the middle. The celestial level, which is the top. The celestial level also has three levels inside of it. So really there are five levels of good in the afterlife. There's also a bad level mm -hmm. called um, perdition or outer darkness sometimes. The sons of perdition go there. Uh, that is reserved specifically for people who have heard Mormon teachings and outright rejected it. And to people who were Mormon and left the church and were excommunicated. Mm -hmm. So uh, the bottom level, the telestial level is for murderers, liars, adulterers, thieves. One Mormon scholar named Bruce McConkie said that Adolf Hitler will be there. The next level, the terrestrial level, is for 
religious people and bad Mormons. By bad Mormons, I mean you've done maybe 10 of the 20 things. Uh, the, the celestial level, that's got those three inside of it, the top of that is the celestial or the exalted level of the celestial kingdom. So exaltation occurs when you've done all those 20 things. And when you get up here, that's when you're given your own sphere of existence. Well, another word for a sphere is a ball. A ball on which we exist is a planet. So you're given your own planet uh, and you get to do whatever you want with it. You can make it Mormon. You can make it Catholic. You can make it atheist. You can make up your own religious faith tradition, whatever you want to do. So that's exaltation. You come up here, you remain in a physical body. You keep your wife up there and y'all basically just have eternal, physical, intimate relationships producing spiritual. Would it be wrong to say then, then basically they believe we, be, we can become gods? Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. So former president of the church named Lorenzo Snow actually said a statement that's now referred to as the Snow Couplet. And that couplet goes like this. As man is now, God once was. As God is now, man may be. So as man is now, God once was. God was once a man walking around the planet. As God is now, man may be simply means that man, if he does all the things he's supposed to, can become God. Uh, now, interestingly, Snow, after he said that, was on the campus at BYU, uh, walking around with the current president of the time. This is years and years and years ago, decades ago. So early, late 18, early 1900s. Snow saw a number of children playing on the campus with marbles. They were shooting marbles. And Snow remarked to the president of BYU, look, those children are preparing to come gods playing with their own little planets. Huh. And they were shooting wow. marbles. Yep. Wow. That, that, I mean, so how would they say, say take Isaiah 44, 6, this mm -hmm. is where God says, I'm the first, mm -hmm. I'm the last. What do they, what do they take with that? I mean, I'm the first in this universe and I'm the last in this universe. Okay. So basically it's... Um, Basically, each God gets their own universe. Mm -hmm. Okay. With the one thing I was reading, which I, I found interesting, and I would love for you to kind of dive into, mm -hmm. it was, um, it said that Adam didn't really, it, it would be wrong to say that Adam really made a mistake when he was sinning right. at the beginning. W what, is, what does that mean? So Mormons usually refer to Genesis 3, the fall, as not a fall down, as evangelical Christians would, or Christians historically would say that. Um, I mean, even Catholics would say that. Mm -hmm. Mormons refer to it as a fall forward. So what that means is, is that Genesis 3 opens up the path for intimate physical relationships to occur because that's an, an integral aspect of Mormonism. Um, and just as a side note, if we have time later, I know you want to potentially talk about cults. All cult groups that have ever broken, broken off of Christianity in all major world religions except for Jehovah's Witnesses, are all based around human sexuality. Every one of them. Mormonism is no exception to that rule. So Genesis 3 is this fall forward. It keeps the plan of God in action, opens up the way for human sexuality, uh, and paves the way for a need for a Messiah later. So it's not a fall down, it's a fall forward. Mormons used to call it a fall up, but they've stopped using that language and now just call it a fall forward. Right. For the Christian mm -hmm. that has to deal with, with this, if they're ever confronted by a Mormon mm -hmm. missionary, what are some tools, some basic things they need to know that they can know about Mormons and how they can combat? Yeah. So it's in a little book, a book I brought called Preach My Gospel. And by the way, if anybody wants to, you can go on the LDS website, uh, 
Now it's churchofjesuschrist.org. You can also check out lds.org and download these books for free if you want to read them. Preach My Gospel is the Mormon Missionary Handbook. So it's important to know that they will tell you exactly what the missionary is going to say. You can go through their five lessons now uh, that the Mormon will go through, and you can just look through this as a Christian and know word for word what the Mormon is going to say because at those missionary training centers, they literally memorize this script. Wow. And it's even, the only difference is whatever language they're going into would be the only difference, but it's word for word. So the most important thing to know is if a Mormon missionary comes to your door and he says, true Christianity was lost from the earth after the death of the last apostle. That is literally all he knows. If you were to say, prove that to me, Christianity was lost would be the answer. And if you keep pushing, you won't get anything else because literally the only thing the Mormon missionary knows is what he memorizes. So the most important thing to remember is when a missionary comes to your door, so you get, you get the nog of the door and it's the two 19-year-old boys from somewhere in the Mountain West probably, dark suits, white shirts, dark ties, and big name badges that say Elder Smith, and they're 19. Most important thing to know is they are not trained theologians. They've not been to Bible college. They've not been to seminary. They've memorized five lessons. They've memorized a script. The other important thing to remember is these are not the enemy. Right? They're not Satan in the flesh. Now, because they're not believers, Satan is in control of their lives. Sin is in complete control. Satan is in control of them. Right. However, they need the gospel just as badly as we did before we were saved. The most important thing you can do with a Mormon missionary is be nice. Because Mormons are taught that non-Mormons will just slam the door in their face, want to kick them out, things like that, scream at them, say they're in a cult. You don't want to do any of that stuff. You want to be the person when the Mormon missionary leaves your porch or leaves your home or wherever it may be, parking lot if you meet them there, and you want the Mormon missionaries to walk away saying, goodness, all that guy talked about was Jesus. So the best thing we can do with a Mormon missionary or with any Mormon that might be a neighbor, whoever it might be, is to share the gospel. And I would say this for any world religion or any cult tradition uh, it's just share the gospel, but share it in a way that the person needs to hear it. Always share the full gospel, but again, in a way the person needs to hear it. So, for example, in Mormonism, temples are important and the priesthood is important. And by priesthood, I mean proper acting authority on behalf of God on the earth. So when I'm talking to a Mormon, I'm going to say things like, um, you know, Jesus says um, he is our great high priest. The author of Hebrews says that he is the final prophet, priest, and king. So what's great about Jesus is, is by placing your faith and trust in Jesus, repenting of your sins, placing your faith and trust in Jesus and him alone, I don't need a human mediator between me and God. Because Paul says Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. The author of Hebrews also says that the temple, that Jesus is the great high priest in the temple in the heavens. So if Jesus is our great high priest, if he holds true priesthood and he is currently in the temple in the heavens mediating on our behalf, not only do I not need a physical human mediator as a person, I also don't need a physical building to mediate between me and God because in the Old Testament, everything is physical. We have physical temples, physical food laws, physical circumcision. 
in the New Testament, all of those things become spiritual. We have spiritual food laws. We have spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart. It's not physical baptism, it's circumcision of the heart. We have a physical or spiritual rather great high priest in Jesus in a spiritual heaven mediating on our behalf. So what I've just done is remove the need for the priesthood and remove the need for the temples, but I've never said Joseph Smith. I never said Brigham Young. I never said Book of Mormon. I never said you're in a cult. So it's following the example of Paul in Acts 17. When Paul talks to the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers, every single phrase that he utters at the Areopagus in Acts 17 directly addresses either Stoicism or Epicureanism or both, but he never says Stoic or Epicurean, ever. What he does is presents the gospel in a way that scratches the itch, so to speak, of the Stoic and the Epicurean. So that's what I would say about Mormons. Know that they need the priesthood. Know that they need physical priesthood. Know they need physical temples. Address those things in your gospel presentation and fill it with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Because look, having to do 20 things to be saved is not full of grace. It's not full of mercy. Mm-hmm. And it's the opposite of forgiving. Yeah. But we worship and serve a graceful, merciful, forgiving God. And it will be like a cold drink of water when you've been wandering through the desert for a year to a Mormon when you proclaim the gospel in that faith. Right. I imagine there's a lot of uncertainty amongst Mormons about their eternal. There eternity. is. Uh, in fact, a former president was asked, how many Mormons do you think will make it into the exalted level of the celestial kingdom? And he said, and I quote, we'll be doing good to get 10%. Wow. So they just basically have to hope. Uh, a lot of Mormons will say, I'll do my best and God will do the rest. So basically, Mormonism is a polythe- polytheistic religion. So technically, right? it's not. Be, technically, okay. it's henotheistic. Okay. So polytheism is the belief that there are multiple gods and we worship multiple gods. So Hinduism, not Hinduism, I'm sorry. Um, Hinduism is, is also henotheistic. Um, Buddhism. Okay. Some Buddhists would be polytheistic. A lot of Central and South American ancient religions, uh, like the Mayans and the Aztecs, were polytheistic. Henotheism is the belief that there are multiple gods, but I'll pick one and worship that one because I believe he can give me more or she can give me more and protect me from the other deities. That's Hinduism. 330 million gods, but most Hindus pick one, worship that one, believing that one can protect them from the other 329 million, 999,999. Mormonism is the same way. They believe in an infinite number of gods, but they pick one, Elohim, and worship him. They don't worship any other deity. Uh, so it's not polytheistic simply because they don't worship multiple gods. Right. It's henotheistic. Yeah. Okay, understood. So Mormonism as a cult, and then just cults in general, mm-hmm. how do these things form? Usually they form by somebody having a question about something in Christianity and they just can't get a satisfactory answer or they get a bad answer. Um, or they get an answer that some pastor or professor somewhere just makes up. Um, or it's a person that's, and I hate to put it this way, but it is what it is. It's a person that's kind of off his rocker a little bit. Um, and sin makes people crazy. And he starts to proclaim he's had revelations from heaven. People like um, David Koresh out with the Branch Davidians in Waco in the 90s like Jim Jones in Guyana in the 70s, like Joseph Smith, like Muhammad. Uh, Islam is technically a cult of Christianity. It's just gotten large enough now that it's considered a world religion. Mm-hmm. Hinduism, or Buddhism rather, is a cult of Hinduism. 
but it's large enough to be a world religion. Technically speaking, Christianity is a cult of Judaism because it historically grows out of that. I'm not right. saying Christianity is a cult. Right. Just saying that's the way that you kind of classify these things academically. Yeah. Um, but they start by somebody claiming to have revelation from God. Usually, if it's a cult out of Christianity, it's revelation that is different from and contrary to the Bible. Um, they have a different view, something to do with the Trinity. So it's either the Father, Son, or Spirit, two or all three. They claim to be the only ones who have the truth. They claim to be persecuted for their faith, and then it just grows from there. The Trinity is a is essential is an essential belief. Yes, for absolutely. Christian. Yep. Um, and so you kind of said all cults kind of take a different direction to that. Mm-hmm. For the Christian, where are some places in Scripture they can say this is evidence for the Trinity, and whether it's the Old Testament or the the New Testament specifically? Yeah. Where are some evidences for the Trinity? So a couple of big ones that people usually point to are Genesis one. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit hovering over the waters, um. And usually, unfortunately, people point to the section in Genesis 1 that says, let us make man in our image. Now, the difficult part with that for arguing for a trinity is that nowhere at that point has Jesus been mentioned, right? So what's been mentioned at that point is the Father, the Spirit, and angels. Uh, so if somebody knows his or her Bible, then they're going to point out and say, well, Jesus didn't mention that there's no trinity. If, if anything, there's two, but there's not three. But we do have God walking in the garden. If that's a true story, and it is because it's in Genesis, then we know God can't physically walk through a garden because he's a spirit being. Therefore, that's a pre-incarnate Jesus walking through the garden. So there you have the Father, Son, and Spirit. You can look at the baptism of Jesus, the Father speaking, the Spirit descending like a dove, and Jesus being physically baptized. You can look at uh, the end of 2 Corinthians 13. So some Bibles have, some translations have 2 Corinthians 13, 13. Some have it listed as 13, 14, but nonetheless, it's the same in all of them. Just uh, versification is different. It says, the love of God, the grace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's all three put on equal footing, and all three are given specific tasks and specific roles they perform. God loves, Jesus gives grace, the Spirit gives fellowship. So those are just a few places you can look to. Genesis 1, John 1, the baptism of Jesus in all four Gospels and in the end of 2 Corinthians. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, one thing about Mormonism, and this is kind of off topic, mm-hmm. but in that Genesis 1 account where it says, um, God says, they have become like us, mm-hmm. talking about humans. Yep. What does that mean in, in, from the Mormon, Mormon perspective? From the Mormon perspective, it's you knew too much. You got too much information. Uh, and so we need to shut this whole thing down and move it forward. Now, it's also part of the fall forward. Right, because we now have the knowledge of good and evil. So once you have the knowledge of good and evil, up until that point, humans were basically on the fence, could go either good or evil. Once you have the knowledge of good and evil, we fall to this side, but it's a to the evil side, but it's a good fall. So that's the fall forward part. That's how they would interpret that. Gotcha. Understood. Um, so for any cult, Mm -hmm. one thing I hear a lot is well, for one, I mean, Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and he says some things that the Old Testament scribes and Pharisees strongly disagree with. That right. was not their expectation. So for someone that says, what makes Jesus different from any other cult leader? How would you respond to that? Pretty simply, the Bible says so. Okay. Jesus is the eternally existing Son of God. He is the eternally existing second person of the Trinity, John 1, um, the four servant songs in Isaiah, 
Genesis one with him walking through the garden. Um, you know, I'm not going to point to evidences or things like that because of my understanding of apologetics. I'm always going to point back to the text of scripture. Jesus is different because the Bible says so. Right. He really did rise from the dead. He really did appear for 40 days. He really did ascend to heaven on the 40th day. Um, he really came in the flesh, performed all these miracles, did all these things, taught these things, uh, really did found the Christian church that in the face of every possible opposition thrown at it grew exponentially over the last 2,000 years. My basic answer, though, is the Bible says so. Right. Understood. How should we respond to, to anybody um, saying that they have new revelation? I mean, what's the answer to there's no, there's no more revelation that comes after what the scripture that we have, after the, after the Bible? Yep. So I'd point to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, all scriptures inspired by God and given um, for various uses, right? So for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In 3.17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped or adequate for every good work. If, and Paul there is talking about not only the Old Testament, he's also talking about the Gospels, which would include Acts because Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Mm -hmm. He also refers to Peter's writings as Scripture. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. Uh, they both refer to James. Uh, it would also include Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, because the Gospel writer wrote all those as well. So when we say all scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. If the Bible gives us enough to make us adequate, gives us enough to make us thoroughly equipped, I don't need any more. Uh, now, I could also go to the end of Revelation and say uh, where the revelator argues or notes that if anything is taken away from this book, then the blessings of heaven will be taken away. If you add, the curses will be added to him. Most scholars would argue that applies only to the book of Revelation. However, it's interesting that John quotes from Deuteronomy when he says that. So I think directly it applies to Revelation, but you could easily indirectly apply it to all of Scripture. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Revelation 21. Okay, perfect. What we, what we see from this is, is an important need for, one, understanding what the Word says, mm -hmm. and the need for apologetics, which, go, which they go hand in hand. Go hand in hand with yep. knowing what scripture says. Yep. Talk a little bit about the importance of that for the church today. Yeah. So, you know, over the last 200 years or so, apologetics has become a very specialized discipline. Mm -hmm. We need to know all these evidences. We have to know all these scientific arguments. Uh, I've got to know mathematic, higher mathematics and, and uh, geology and history and philosophy and all these things. And it's really removed apologetics from the layperson in the pew and put it up on a pedestal to make it this conference-only, scholar-only type discipline. And I think that's very unfortunate because if you look at 1 Peter 3.15, that's not at all what Peter is talking about. Peter's talking to, to Christians, and 1 Peter 3.15 is the verse that most apologists appeal to. Uh, Peter's talking to Christians who've been dispersed across the ancient world. They're being persecuted for their faith. And he says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you when anyone asks. So if he's talking to normal Joe and Jane Christian who have been dispersed or being persecuted for their faith, his assumption is they're living their lives in such a way that makes them filled with hope to the extent that people think, what in the world is wrong with you? How can you smile and have hope and real joy in the midst of being persecuted? How can you have that? 
That's where Peter says, be ready to give a defense, to give an apologia for the hope, Jesus, that's in you. If we're to give a defense, Jesus, how do we do that? We do not do that through secular human argumentation. I don't talk about Jesus from philosophy. I don't talk about Jesus from history. I don't talk about Jesus from geology or archaeology or mathematics or science. I talk about Jesus from scripture. So how do theology and apologetics relate? They're the same thing. How do apologetics and evangelism relate? They're the same thing. Anytime you answer the question, why Jesus? You're doing apologetics, you're doing theology, you're doing evangelism, you're doing biblical studies. Right. So we appeal to the scriptures because Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. All those who believe, Jew first and also to the Greek. If the gospel is the power of God, where is it found? In the New Testament. So we appeal to the scriptures to see people saved. Anytime we step out of the role of the evangelist and into the role of the convictor or converter, we have placed ourselves into the path of the Holy Spirit and stepped out of our responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's our responsibility to share. It's the Spirit's role to convict and convert. What's happened is over the last 200 years or so is apologists have have said, let's share, but let's also convict. Let's argue them into the kingdom. Let's show them such a powerful, logical argument that they simply can't say no. That's as unbiblical an argument as you find anywhere. Nowhere in the text from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 do you see logical argumentation being used. You see the gospel being presented to people in a way that they should hear it so they can understand it so it scratches the itch. So what's apologetics good for? We, under, we study Mormonism to know how to share the gospel with them. So in the back of my mind, when I'm talking to a Mormon, I know what he believes. I know what parts of the gospel to stress. Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Scientology, Branch Davidians, uh, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, on and on it goes. The atheist on the street, the college student who no longer believes in God is an, and is agnostic. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to say any of those words, but I want to share the gospel in a way that will scratch that hitch. So apologetics and theology hand in glove. Evangelism and apologetics and theology, hand in glove. It all goes together. Right. Think about some of the evidential apologetic mm-hmm. apologists out there that I guess like William, William Lane Craig is probably the biggest, the biggest name. The, this idea that I was talking to um, Dr. Willoughby about this, the idea that re, he was telling me this, it wasn't me, but the idea that reasonable people will just come to God is, is, is just, it's just not the evidence isn't there in scripture. That's, that's a, not only is that a logical fallacy, it's a sinful fallacy mm-hmm. for us to believe that we can argue somebody into the kingdom. Right. Um, because the natural inclination is against. The natural inclination is against. That's Romans 1. Um, Paul says that God has written himself not only into the human heart in Jeremiah, but Paul says in Romans 1 that he's written himself into creation, that you can see that he exists. He has an eternal power and divine nature. But Romans 1, 18 to 32 also says that the unbeliever will take that and twist it and worship creation rather than creator. Why would I want to use creation to bring somebody to Christ? I can't. The gospel's not in the trees and the sun. The gospel's in the scriptures. Only when we share the scriptures will the unbeliever then be converted if the spirit works. And then the person sees the trees and the sun for what they really are, the creation of God. There's, there's again, as the, as the prop you're uh, re- referring to uh, noted, there's no text anywhere that says we can reason somebody into 
belief. In fact, the opposite is the case. So why are you thinking? So what that does is it, is it makes apologetics no longer a stage conference only PhD level only thing. All you have to know is the Bible. And as a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Matt Queen, uh, professor of evangelism at Southwestern seminary says all the time, if you know enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough of the gospel to share it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's all there is to it. Just right. share your faith. Right. Is there still a spot for, if you're dealing with like a guy like Bart Ehrman mm -hmm. for archeological evidence when talking about the, the, um, the proof of the scripture being accurate? Amongst yeah. The, so I would lines? say no. Okay. Because Ehrman is an unbeliever. He's not going to accept your logical argument. Even if he does, it's not going to make him a Christian. Right. So it could very well be the case that let's say I'm Ehrman and you're me and we're sitting here debating or whoever's debating him. And it's, we don't know it, but it's Ehrman's last five minutes on the earth and he's about to die. You have no idea it's going to happen, but you spend all your time in that debate talking about evidence for the historicity of the text and archeological finds and all those things. He says, you know what? You're right. And he dies. Hmm. What's happened. He's going to die and go to hell. Right. Because he never said, I repent of my sins. I place my faith and trust in Christ because he was never given the opportunity. Again, I cannot stress this enough. I've been saying this for 15 years with students, any, anywhere I go to talk about Mormonism, apologetics, whatever it may be, it is not our role to convict and convert. So if Ehrman wants to know why the scriptures are true, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is why they're true. And if you call it circular, every argument out there is circular. Right. Every faith tradition, whether it's religious or not, is circular at its base. Right. But we, so even though we have that body of evidence, it's not the, not the source because that's not what's going to get the spirits convicting. That's right. The, sword, okay. the spirit convicts through the preached word. Right. That's it. No amount of logical argumentation is going to convict somebody of their sin. Okay. Only the scriptures will do that. Now, right. evidence might come in later where you look at somebody and say, hey, here's what the Bible says about creation. Now, let me show you how creation actually fits into that. Okay. You don't base your faith on it, right? I don't base my faith in arguments for God's existence or geology or archaeology or any of that. But we can look at it through a Christian lens and go, oh, I get it now. I see it. I see how it works. So an unbeliever looks at a sunrise and says, that's beautiful. A believer looks at a sunrise and says, that's a painting that God created for me right now. And it displays the glory of God. For example, he might say it's beautiful and throw up his fist in God's face and say, you don't exist. There's no amount of beauty in creation or anything that's going to convince the unbeliever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so finishing up, just is there anything else about cults, maybe specifically, whether it's Mormonism or any other cult that we need to know about in terms of preparation, just to, just to defend uh, for a defense. Yeah. The biggest thing is, you know, you don't have to know everything about every cult group. You don't have to know something about every cult group. The individual Christians greatest tool is the gospel, right? So if you know, Romans three twenty three, Romans six twenty three, Romans 10 or Romans, um, five, and then Romans 10, nine and 10. So three twenty three, six twenty three, five, eight, ten, nine and 10 then you have enough of the gospel to share with somebody to see them come to Christ. It doesn't matter if that person is an atheist or an agnostic or a Mormon or a Muslim or a Hindu. That, if that gospel is powerful enough to save the person who hated Christians more than anybody in the history of human civilization, Saul, and convert his soul, 
then it's enough to convert the atheist, agnostic, whatever college student who yeah. has dabbled in Islam and Mormonism and Hinduism. Right. If it can convert soul, it can convert anybody. Yeah. If it can really convert good. me, you, it can convert anybody. Right. Just share the gospel and trust that it will work. Right. That's really good. I want to give you an opportunity if you wanted to, um, your book here. Yeah. Is that fairly new? What is, what no, is that so this on? came out 2018. Uh, it's called The Saints of Zion. Uh, this will sound like a shameless plug, but uh, we don't take any proceeds from this. So all the proceeds we've ever received from this book, we send back to missionaries in Utah. Awesome. That's um, awesome. So the purpose of the book, though, is to, it's an academic book, so I'll go in and warn anybody who might read it. So it's got footnotes, which can kind of scare people sometimes. But about 80% of this is direct quotes from Mormon sources. So it's four main chapters, four big chapters, the doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of scripture, doctrine of salvation, and what Mormon um, leaders have said in the past, what their official writers or writings say, official publications, like Preach My Gospel and Gospel Principles, and what their current leaders have said about those areas. And then the last chapter is evangelizing. Uh, so how to share the gospel with the Mormon, what to point out, what to uh, deal with. Um, so this was put out 2018. Uh, we were still in Utah at the time. So reading on bio on the back, it says, I live in Salt Lake City. Um, but I wrote it so that we would know where we disagree with things. Because most books written on Mormonism in the past, a Mormon picks up and he says, I don't believe half of the stuff in there. The one that most people have is called Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. He deals with the four big ones with Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Scientology. And 30 to 40% of what he says Mormons believe, they don't believe. He's not a bad person for writing it. It's just the research wasn't as good as it could be. So what I want to do again is just to say, here's what Mormons believe. Mm -hmm. Now, I've had Mormon scholars at BYU read those sections and say, yes, you got us right. We disagree with your conclusions but you got us right, which is what was important to me when I was writing it. So now here's what they believe. Now, based on that, how can we share the gospel with them? Right. Yeah. And you can get it on Amazon. You can get it from Lifeway, any, any place where you buy books. Okay. Awesome. That's great. Um, Dr. Kearns, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Yeah, you bet. Glad I really, to do it. really appreciate it. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sure. So, I'm Wilson Paris, and that's a good word.